Hi everyone, this is episode two and it's all about rare diseases. I'm Catherine. And I'm Andrew. This is the Practical Protection Podcast. So first things first, Andrew, everybody is dying to know. I know from the whole eight people that responded to the (laughs) poll that I did on Twitter, everybody is dying to know (laughs) um, which of us is telling um, the truth and which is telling a lie. So I will repeat mine first. So mine is that I have thalassophobia and that I have never been on a boat. Yeah, and mine is that my interest in all things medical started when I was age five and I chopped my middle finger off in a deck chair. Okay, so I think I'll go first. So I am going to tell everybody, I feel like we need some kind of like, you know, that kind of heartbeat. Oh, yeah, okay. Yeah. That I'm telling the truth. I have thalassophobia, which is a fear of dark water. But I am also telling a lie in the sense that I have been on boats and I've actually also done scuba diving as well. And I'm completely grossed out that you missed your middle finger. I'm I'm really like cringy now over things like that. <laughs> I don't know why. Yeah, I used to no, so I yeah, so I and I struggle to tell the story as to how much I can remember and how much it's I don't know the word for it, where it's like a movie. I definitely visualize yeah. it in the third person. But yes, basically. I was taken to hospital with me in one car and then the neighbours brought part of my finger in the other car in a bag of frozen peas, so the story goes. Um, It doesn't affect me for much now, so so my middle finger is like the same length as the two fingers next to it on one hand. And it only really affects me when I go temping bowling and I kind of have a claw finger a bit. So uh, <laughs> sometimes, sometimes, nice the ball doesn't get, no, absolutely. <laughs> so, so as with anything, but it is actually last week I thought of it in the context of this. So one of the things I'm doing on other days of the week at the moment is doing some underwriting rules. And we were doing, uh, I was doing amputations. Nice. Um, it's kind of well, technically, I've you know, I have had a yeah. finger amputated, but you, when you write these rules, you're assuming something, you know, I guess, frankly, more, more dramatic or more. Yeah. more imp- so um, yes, that's me. So so on that occasion, I was true, and you were half true. You claim for I was half true. I was half true. As it should be, yeah. Exactly. Oh, oh, all the advisors, like all the underwriters, now are like high fiving you in the air yeah. and like giggling in their seats, and all the advisors are now just squaring up shoulders yeah. back. Bring it on, Andrew. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I think we both agreed, didn't we? We were going to do something completely different to start this off, but we feel that it's um, much more important that we focus on events that have happened very, very recently. So obviously at the end of last week, uh, we had the very unfortunate thing in the UK where um, the woman, Caroline Flack, uh, decided to take her own life due to the, I think, no matter what you think of the situation, whether or not you believe whatever happened or not, in her personal life the absolute relentless trolling and bullying that she had from media and social media and it's quite important I think both of us feel that it needs to be just spoken about a little bit you know I've said before I'm a typical uh 40 year old 41 year old male and so my the three funerals I've been to are friends that I've known have all been men who committed suicide obviously um you know, in very different circumstances. And so certainly one, I think, would have been in that nothing like this, but high-pressured environment. And every human is different. And I think the risk is you make it about, you know, you, you can you can make all these things the same, a horrible situation. And um, 
it does it kind of brings home the importance of some of the stuff we do and the sensitivity we need to have all of us i think whether whether our role in this is um designing questions to be asked whether it's be actually asking those questions to people whether it's dealing with claims um you know this is stuff we are nearer to than probably uh most people on the street but it, it still doesn't take away the kind of shock when things like this actually happen um no, not at all. I mean, I think I, I obviously I went on Twitter and said, and I would never ever equate what I've been through anywhere to, to near what Caroline has, but I had some recent trolling um, on Twitter and it was only from, it must have been, I think it was less than 10 people or so, possibly even less than five. I can't remember now because I've, I've fortunately managed to block it out as much as I can. Um, but it was awful and i think it's that kind of thing of um i've got no shame in admitting i mean i was relentlessly bullied at school and it was awful but then when i got home even though it in a sense it didn't stop in my mind you know i would remember it and different things it it kind of stopped whereas now with social media you know there is that concern and i'm worried about it for my kids as well is that the bullying doesn't stop it can carry on so say when these trolls were starting with me the other week it was just yeah. message after message after message. You don't even get a chance to, you know, speak. You know, even if, you know, I would try with each person, I would try and send a message to say, look, I think you've misunderstood. Maybe the message I've tried to get out, if you want to speak, you know, it can maybe private message. And they would just go and go and go and go. And eventually I would just, you know, I got to the point where I was just kind of, right, I've tried really nicely to speak to you. Um, I'm just going to block you. And I just, I didn't even start that I just kind of had to do that for my own mental health and and the fact of the matter is I had to do that for my mental health over something that was such a small group of people and to think what she would have been going through with the amount of the contacts and everything I think it's it's an incredibly sad situation and um, one thing I think is a good thing to maybe suggest that people look into is um, obviously familiarizing yourself with things like the guidance from the Samaritans um, I did a, a video on it a little while ago about their shush listening can, um, techniques as to how to really try and listen to someone if they're not feeling well. And uh, myself and Alan not long ago did um, the mental health first aider training with um, MHFA England. And they are the ones that do the really official version. So, so whilst not everybody wants to do those courses, it's the kind of thing of, you know, if you're able to look into them, even if you can't attend the course, if you can just look around some of the best guidance practices, so like make sure that you hear those little, sometimes those little trigger words that you don't even realize trigger words that someone says to you. I think the general rule of thumb is just don't be a douche, you know, in a sense, yes. just don't, if you've not got something, it is that thing of you've not got something nice to say, or you've got something judgmental that you're going to say about someone, you want to just keep it to yourself. Or, you, you know, if it's something that you're prepared to say to somebody on social media, if you're not prepared to say it, if you were next to them and in that person to discuss with them how you're feeling or how they've come across to you, then just just don't say it <laughs> it's quite simple but anyway let's get on to this whole thing about yes. rare conditions and i say i know we said rare diseases but I'm, i need to say conditions because if not i feel like i'm diseased and i don't like that and okay. i'd yeah. like us to <laughs> let's change the terminology straight away <laughs> kind of thing yeah languages I, I guess as per the top i mean i think that often is one of those things where hopefully interesting things will come out for me and you and um you listening from these conversations and it, and it is a natural flow i think from the first from our what we we're talking about just there with mental health as, as a specific but i guess you you understand that catherine in, in sort of some of the lazy terms underwriters might use about impaired lives or 
um, yes. mind lives or whatever. And yeah, diseases and conditions is, is, is almost that next level beneath of going, can that matter to people? Well, it can, right? Yeah. Well, yeah, because I, I mean, I'm, I am one of those people, you know, say, yes. so, you know, taking it, I am impaired and I am diseased. So, mm. you know, I feel like my, you know, if, if anything happens to Ellen, my Tinder profile is going to be wonderful, isn't it? I am yeah. human, you know. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I always used to say this thing, you know, like when I was at school, I used to say it's not normal to be normal. You know, I don't yeah. think it is. You know, I think everyone, to me, I, I would find it strange and I can't think of anyone that I know that doesn't have something you know i mean obviously we know each other and now i know you've got a dodgy middle finger on one hand that i'm now going to be clearly looking for um, <laughs> next time i see you in person um but you know we've all got something that we have but I, I mean how many how often is it that you know in a sense how is there kind of like anything out there that says just how many people really do have like these rare conditions so yeah so a definition generally used of rare disease is one that affects less than one in two thousand people so picture your local village or your very large secondary school or whatever it is and it's less than one in two thousand people the really interesting and sort of magic trick with numbers is that there's so many rare conditions that it ends up affecting around one in 20 people in the uk so around three million adults in the uk will have a rare disease see that's very surprising as well because isn't it last week we were just saying it was about what just it just one in a hundred or something people will have in a sense epilepsy which seemed like a really like, wow, that's, that's a lot of people, actually. This is even more so, one in 20 people. It's, I guess, in terms of why it's really important to think about, those numbers are increasing and are only going to increase. And again, we touched on some of those reasons in epilepsy last week, whereas, I guess, as medical understanding comes to the fore, um, then you realise that things that you thought were actually one condition become, in effect, rare diseases. And often that's the challenge for... Um, anyone who's whether a doctor or an underwriter or the patient or customer client um, is is understanding well what what was that called was that something before and if so what was that and and what has made it into a rare disease almost is it is it something that's new that simply hasn't been found before or is it a subdivision of something that's existed before yeah um, I think what what often happens with these in terms of underwriting um, and life insurance and critical illness and income protection in general is that rare diseases take much longer to diagnose in other conditions typically and that's for um, a number of reasons but a big one is that they are rare for a GP to diagnose as well so there's some scary stats that go that a rare disease typically takes five to six years to be properly diagnosed and I know that you will have stories of both yourself and yep. people that you speak with on the phone who absolutely will kind of verify that stat. I'm gearing up for my story don't you worry. Yeah. <laughs> so, so you have that period where in reality that person if they're applying for life insurance is applying with some symptoms with maybe some misdiagnosis and we have that to talk about right? Yeah. Um, the other, I think the other interesting thing from an underwriting perspective is that it's less likely when, this con when rare conditions have been diagnosed that they're going to have a, a beautifully pre-programmed rule to deal with them in a very fair way. So you actually end up with kind of a back-to-basics underwriting where, where, you, where you do have to do some desk-based research, understand the condition and apply, and apply the decision, um, which actually can make these a lot more interesting and dare I say it, fun to underwrite because you are back to that point where you have a bit more freedom. 
I mean, I think it's, it's like rare conditions is something that really interests me um, on the basis that obviously we speak to a lot of people that are classed as having a rare condition. Um, now, I will obviously, and I'm sure that there's plenty of people who know me and plenty of underwriters who are right now going to cover their ears when I say hypermobility syndrome. So I have hypermobility syndrome. Okay. I know that it's a rare condition. And quite frankly, I know that because I was diagnosed when I was 12 and I was treads like this massive oddity i was um there was two key professors in the uk who um did the sorry the diagnoses i was shipped between both of them in london and leeds the person in london actually took photographs of me in my contorted positions for his medical students as you know as an example to teach them um which when you're 12 makes you feel like a complete utter freak obviously yeah. When it comes to high mobility for the androids out there, I am a full nine out of nine on the Baton score. I went through my teenage years when the hormones were really bad. I have the bad side of high mobility in that there was one week when every single day for a week I was in A&E with a new injury. And at one point I had my arms and my legs all out of commission. And as a 14 year old, I have to say it wasn't fun, <laughs> you know, and then all of a sudden you're back to almost like a childlike um, life, um, very young childlike life and a parent having to look after you, which is completely demoralizing. And it was rare. And at that point, it was so rare. I was originally diagnosed as having hyperextensibility syndrome because that was a terminology that was given, which I luckily my parents had private medical insurance. And um, we saw the medical notes where the doctors had accused my mum of having Munchausen's yeah. and um, different things like that. And we went to this consultant who, within a few minutes, said exactly what I had, realised it actually had been passed on through my mum, through her dad, and we could go back through the line a bit to find out where it is. It then obviously changed quite quickly to then be more commonly called hypermobility syndrome. And I don't want to sort of make it seem as if I'm saying why like, everybody with hypermobility is absolutely hunky-dory healthy and a lot of because I know that I've obviously not had I did well when I was younger I didn't have a good go of things and touch wood for whatever reason things have gotten better but not everyone does and some people who have actual Ehlers-Danlos syndrome do have potentially a lot more of say like the organ involvement now I've I had lots of tests done so I had my heart checked which showed that there was no um, complication of what's known as Marfan's which is a similar kind of connected condition um, I also had DEXA scans done just to make sure the bone density as to how everything was working on the inside and everything was showing up fine with that I was just going to be much more prone to injuries um, because everything is just a little bit more looser in me than it should be the thing that gets me so like with stuff like Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, now I get the fact that, you know, underwriters and everybody have to take into account what could potentially come and how conditions can progress. So, you know, having like the hypermobility and Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, I would now be classed by a GP or a diagnosis as having Ehlers-Danlos type 3. So if I went for an application and I said, and said, someone said to me, have you been diagnosed with any of these? I could say, well, I've been diagnosed with hypermobility syndrome not being diagnosed with Ehlers-Danlos type 3 because that's not what I've actually been diagnosed with. But the ways that GPs are classifying it now, people are, from people that we're seeing, you know, people are just walking into a GP surgery with bendy you know, wrists, bendy elbows, and they're being told, oh, well, you've got Ehlers-Danlos syndrome type 3. Don't worry, it's not, the, it's not the one where there's going to be any kind of things going on on the inside. You don't have to stretch your skin. But yeah, okay, this is what you've got. So they then have on their medical records that they've got Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, which immediately is a huge flag, especially when you're looking at critical illness cover. And this is sort of like a bit of advice that I want to give to advisors out there, is that if you do have someone coming to you to say, I've got hypermobility syndrome, the first thing to do then is to say to them, have you ever, ever heard the words or been told Ehlers-Danlos syndrome 
Then also check, you know, have you been told Marfan's stickler syndrome? There's a whole suite of different ones that are all connected. And it's so, so important because that completely changes what the indication will be and what the terms will be. And it's, it's really, I have to say, annoying. And I get that from an insurance point of view, and I fully get from an underwriter's point of view, you get the name of a condition and it is going to categorize, in a sense, that person. And I get that. But there's just this kind of thing at the moment where things aren't matching up right. You've got GPs who are diagnosing Erlos-Danlos type 3 when they just mean height mobility syndrome. I mean, they may mean Erlos-Danlos type 3, but then what Erlos-Danlos type 3 means needs to be changed in how it's seen by insurers. Do, do you see what I mean? How there's just, it's not really adding up right now because people can just have hyperextendable joints without all the inside bits going on as well. Does that make yeah. sense? I guess the first thing to acknowledge is that having promised we won't do much technical jargon, I'm delighted that you're the first person to have trashed that completely <laughs> with about 17 <laughs> different medical terms in two sentences. Where, where I'm sorry. Me. So, so well done. And that gives me free reign now. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry, everyone. I'm sorry. But no, I totally, I've got passion about this. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and it is. And it is that level of detail that makes a difference. And, it, and as you say, it, it's, it's trying to, I guess, as an underwriter who the first time you see a case is probably by the time it's someone's entered details on an application form. I think a lot of those conversations that go on between you and a client aren't lost aren't, aren't understood um, by that underwriter or potentially actually nowadays the first time an underwriter sees it is when they get that gp report in and they're trying to go well who do i believe here because i've got a client yeah. and an advisor who have said this and a gp that said that and you're left going well which you know which is it and and let's be honest the assumption the starting assumption is that what the doctor's saying is going to be more credible than what the individual's saying. Yeah. And I think, I think the situations you described there are where, for any underwriters listening, almost that, well, is that always the case? And when might it not be true? And there's, obvious, you know, there's some obvious situations where it won't be true, where literally it's the wrong person's medical records or something like that. But, but these subtleties do come out more for rarer diseases, for rarer conditions. They come out more with emerging conditions and where definitions are changing. Because, you know, if, if the general theme of this from my side is often underwriters are humans too, so are doctors, so are GPs. And it's easy to sit there when it's happening to you and your family and criticise the hell out of GPs for not being on top of things. Yeah. But as back to the nature of this, this whole broader, rare, rare, diseases symptoms thing the fact is for that gp they spend half their day looking at people with colds flus vaccinations and then sort of once every two weeks someone different walks in Absolutely. and probably once every three months someone walks in with with you know some of these things um none of which excuses it and all of which is well so we need to do something that works for these um i guess the but my overall thing and back right to the top right to your mental health piece is is a lot is about listening and listening to the symptoms and checking do they match that diagnosis um, and really understanding that becomes the core skill I think for 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 an underwriter and insurer who wants to do well at this who wants to actually make the right decisions on these cases. 
I speak to underwriters, obviously, and they are human. And I think a big thing as well is the fact that a lot of these decisions can be subjective at times, especially when we're going into the rare conditions, which can be hard. Um, you know, you can sometimes bring it in show, you can speak to one underwriter and get a completely different indication if you speak to someone else. And that can be really hard for obviously managing yeah. a client's expectations. But I mean, just some examples of rare diseases that are rare conditions. Sorry, I really don't like saying diseases. Rare conditions um, that we come across, you know, some big examples that there's um, like Cowden syndrome, the smith lewy syndrome, mitochondrial disease. There's one that I have no idea how to pronounce. Alan's been helping them. It's HLH. It's, I'm going to try it. Hemophagocytic lymphohistiocytosis. Okay. And that's it. That's it. Thank you. Um, and it's difficult because as well, I've been told, now I don't know if this is right or not. I feel like I need to sort of like lower my voice as if this is potentially <laughs> a secret. But I've been basically much told that reinsurers are up for anything. They will look at these things and they'll go, you know what, I'll give that a crack. I'll give it a good go, see if I can offer that insurance. But then the issues with what the insurers are also happy to have a go at. So, I mean, kind of, is that the right kind of way of looking? Is, is that right? Just that the insurers are pretty much bring it to us. We'll see what we can do. Or is that kind of, no, that's not right. What I've heard. I think it's, um, it's probably, probably a reinsurer. <laughs> it's a reinsurer's view, but there's definitely some truth in it at the moment. And I, yeah, I think to understand why that might be. So back to reinsurers, insure insurers, they end up paying, let's say 90% of the claims. They take most of the premium. Yeah. A slightly odd thing through that is that the insurer has to pay for all of the medical evidence um, and obviously the time that it takes their underwriters to make a decision on a case. Um, so it's not generally, it's not the advisor or the customer who's paying for that medical evidence. It's not the reinsurer, it's the insurer. So that's what drives, I guess, that more uh, sceptical, um, trying to find a positive word, that, <laughs> that, that extra factor in that insurer's decision is yeah. if I'm going to spend £100 getting a GP report and it's going to take someone an hour to read it and make a fair decision on it, then do I, how likely is it that even if I can offer terms, if I can offer a fair premium having read that, that that person is then likely to take up the case? Um, and they you know, they, they will have done research and they'll have used, they'll have tried, at least they should have tried. And at, on times they'll go, well, we've done this 10 times each time it comes up either with a decline or with a very highly increased premium. And then none of them continue. Yeah. So that, that can be what's going on. And I think that's where I would have sympathy for the insurers. That said, I think there are also other situations where insurers do just look at it and frankly, it goes, you know, risks going into the, well, this is just too hard and it doesn't fit in our nice, smooth funnels. Um, and so we'd have to charge everyone a bit more to, to do some of those things I've talked about. And I think this is, you know, bluntly, this is kind of, bigger stuff this is some of it's quite philosophical and yeah. um, uh, and some of it's down to earth practical that clearly the less time you spend doing that uh, potentially the cheaper premiums you can give to to people who don't have yeah. rare rare conditions um, i get that yeah. so at the end of the day it's a business as well you've got to be profitable you've got to to make sense but it would just i think sometimes i mean i've had completely different i've got a couple of examples which is just completely different to me which i think are a good example of this so i had somebody um come to us who had cowden syndrome hmm. and um very very rare condition everyone but one 
insurer was just in it, they just weren't even prepared to discuss it but one insurer actually turned around and said look we've got no guidance on this obviously this is so rare it's not even in our manuals tell it tell us what it is tell it how it tell us how it affects them and let's see and that just absolutely blew me away because it was just it was just so nice to actually have you know that thing where the insurer has gone you know what just actually let us see what we can do we're prepared to to give this a go you know let's let's look at the actual symptoms of the condition not the condition itself because we have no idea let's put our hands up and admit we have no idea about this one let's just see how it affects their ability to work which it didn't which was brilliant but then um as another example um i had somebody with uh, mitochondrial disease now this person um had it to it's, it's a genetic condition um so i understand and i do understand looking at the condition if you do any google searches on it why insurers underwriters would be from an initial point of view quite cautious um now this person had it extremely mildly now the thing with this one that kind of got me is that nobody would consider it and from an advisor's point of view and from somebody who isn't inside the insurance side of things the reason that i found that quite interesting in a sense and sort of like a little bit confusing was that this person was had just been told that she was going to be able to go through IVF treatment uh, the reason they were doing the IVF was to in a sense strip out any of the condition so it wasn't passed on um, so to me it was a case of hang on so here's this person who has this condition basically it, it isn't you know in a sense massively symptomatic and yet she, you know and the doctors are saying that she is healthy enough to go through the process of creating a human for nine months, going through labor, all of that kind of stuff. They're saying she's healthy enough to do that, but yet she's not healthy enough to get even be looked at, considered for life insurers, who's sort of like the standard insurers. I found that quite surprising. So I don't know what would be, in a sense, what can advisors do in that kind of a situation? Yeah, so to, I guess to pull the two together, so, so I think this variety and different approaches will often come where you're either hitting conditions that just haven't been considered at all in that insurer's philosophy or that reinsurer's philosophy or more frequently they'll be there but they'll just have um, either something that says cmo so refer to chief medical officer or ic which is even more half-hearted which is individual consideration which sounds great and kind of exactly what you would want it to say but basically means we we haven't had the time to think about this at this point so come back if there's a real situation here and and the reality then is i guess frankly how often how hard are people going to work for those um, because that i especially the ic the individual consideration is as likely to end up being standard rates as it is to being a decline there's kind of it, it, it is just a we don't have enough research or data to do something on this. Yeah. So then to take that second example, and I, and I think this is a, I think this is a common theme and frustration, right? Is where there's real life things that are going on that show that someone, I don't know, in quotes, isn't that bad or is doing well at the moment or is doing well. The starting technical point here is to say life insurance is very, I guess, tightly priced. And so in essence, if you're 35 and, applying for a 25-year term, the assumption by the time you've gone through that insurance, that, that kind of insurance application form, is that you've got, let's say, a 1% to 2% of dying, 2% chance of dying if your standard rate's within that term. So you've got, you know, 1 in 100 or 2 in 100 chance of dying in the next 25 years. When insurers, as they do, say, well, the maximum 
we're going to charge is about three or four times. And even that's very, very rare, as you would know. But to go yeah. up to three or four times, then really that person has still, in the insurer's view, if the insurer thinks that person has a 10 in 100 chance of dying, they will be declining them. You know, that person potentially goes in and says, it's not that bad. You've got a nine in 10 chance of seeing it through to retirement. You've probably got a, then they come to insurance and where everything is this really tightly, tightly packed down place at the moment in the UK market, the emphasis changes. So I think that's, that's why that can correctly happen, I suppose. And it's not to say that there aren't equally situations where people aren't looking at that full picture. I think it'd be good to make sure that, so like what I see as the front line as a normal application process is what you see, think would happen, yeah. <laughs> Andrew. So, so what do you think standard straight through application would happen? And then what would happen for, say, somebody with a rare condition? Before it gets to underwriting, I think it's really important to recognise there's a conversation that's gone on between you or someone in your office or an office like yours and that client. So the first, the first time an underwriter sees a case is when an application form is received in the office. But I'm very aware from spending time in your offices and similar offices that before that point, quite a lot of contact's gone on. Yeah, I mean, obviously, we're an advisor um, broker. The way that we are specifically set up is that we chat to a client and just like all, well, hopefully all advisors, we go through what's the, getting to know your clients. So we'll get to know about their personal circumstances, why they're wanting the insurance and, and being able to sort of help them know how much insurance they need. So we then obviously chat through health and different things like occupation and travel and sports and stuff like that. And I think for anybody who doesn't have health conditions or anything that's sort of like flagged as a risk, they would then go down what we would class as the normal application process. We have to do a lot of pre-sales research for each of our clients because it never happens to what you can't just turn on and go, right, well, this person's in their 30s, they've had stage 1C breast cancer, and we need to do the research. Oh, this person's also in their 30s, stage 1C breast cancer. You can't ever rely upon what you've done before. You get a general feel, feel as to which insurers are generally better for different risks compared to others. And, you know, sometimes you'll get someone will ring up and they'll say something, you'll just go straight away, go, right, no way you're going to be going with insurer XYZ because they're just not going to be right for you. You know, in your head, you obviously don't say that out loud. But, and you'll be immediately thinking, right, you know, but ABC, yeah, they could be, you know, they could be a good one here, but you still have to do obviously all your research. I think especially for these rarer ones the underwriter kind of has to activate and engage that that individual consideration and, and what to do so you go back to the i guess back to underwriting day one and and the most important decision ultimately is whether you want to offer terms to an individual ultimately whether you want to insure an individual or not it's fair to say that nowadays there is a you know, there's a lot of pressure not to get medical evidence unless you really need to um, for pretty obvious economic and efficiency reasons. So partly you spend less money. Also, it's more more likely that someone's going to take up the policy if you can make a decision in two days rather than two months. The stories that and the information that either should be being gathered by a good underwriting team asking the right questions and or a good advisor performing some of that role for them will vary dependent on the product. But ultimately, it's predicting how likely the claim is. So for life insurance, it's are you going to die or not? For critical illness, it's are you going to have a critical illness? But income protection, I think, is almost where there's the most scope and where some of those stories and personal experiences really, really can and should make a difference. I think a, a, an interesting thing on that, I mean, for me especially, is obviously starting to look at 
you know, we're wanting to obviously talk about more protection things than just silicon. We've mentioned life a few times. So I'm going to put you on the spot again a bit. So silicon looking at high mobility, Ehlers Danlos syndrome, stuff like that. So the difficulty is, the biggest, biggest difficulty is critical illness cover. Now that gets to me because as far as I'm aware, there is no, nothing that would suggest that having Ehlers Danlos syndrome would make you at a higher risk of developing cancer. Parkinson's disease, if, you know, Ehlers-Danlos syndrome itself doesn't, you know, that in itself doesn't mean that you've necessarily got a heart, you know, problem. It doesn't necessarily mean you're going to have a stroke or anything like that. So I don't, I mean, I'm not going to say that I'm a medical doctor, so obviously I'm not, you know, I'm a doctor, but not a medical doctor, but I don't know why it's just such this hard line, no, for people, generally for people. I have managed to do it. It took a lot of involvement and research and debate, we'll say, with an insurer. The general rule of thumb is, is a no. But you know, even if somebody with Ehlers-Danlos syndrome does have a bit of an issue with the digestive tract, even if they are incontinent, how does that make them? Why does that make them an absolute no for these other policies? And just it's, it's the fact that there's not even a conversation at times. It's just no. The reason for a lack of conversation, I guess, is if it's going to be no, it's better that someone says no quickly rather than wastes anyone's time. But so why? So should it be a no in the end or not? I mean, I do think it depends on severity. You're right. There's the main issues are going to be digestive or potentially for variants of uh, there can be cardiac an increased chance of cardiac events. And if we've ruled out Marfan's, if we've moved out the yeah. Marfan's, because Marfan's is the one that's the heart side of thing. The Stickler syndrome is the one that has the involvement with yeah. the eyes. So I'd understand if those were, but they would be very, very specific diagnosis. So a GP's not, I, I don't believe some, a GP is going to diagnose someone as Ehlers-Danlos syndrome and completely miss the significant physical traits that are associated with Marfan's and Stickler syndrome and the other hypermobile um, conditions. So, you know, if someone's going in with Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, if the doctor feels that there's obviously, especially the potential risk of them not having diagnosed Marfan's and Stickler, they're not obviously going to miss that. So if the doctor's not wanting them to go off and have it, if it's just a case if you've got Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, go on about your life. You know, or even for the case of them saying, right, well, you actually, we'd need you to have a medical because we want one of our nurses to come see you and make sure you don't, obviously have Marfan's or Stickler syndrome. I mean, it just doesn't seem like it's right at the moment. And I'm sure that I say, I'm sure there's plenty of underwriters banging their head against the desk now and probably t- quieting me down until your voice comes back on. <laughs> but yeah, it, it just, it seems just, it, it just doesn't add up to me. As I say, there's, there's the bit that around digestive issues and the difficulty there in either applying a broad enough exclusion to work for that or finding a fair increased premium to reflect the fact that there is an increased risk of conditions related to that there isn't the long-term research on long-term effects on that and that may be something let's be clear you know i I can't speak for all underwriters at this point but as you as you yourself described the literature is all relatively new because these conditions are still relatively new now that doesn't give anyone the right or excuse to just decline people for 25 years until you've got 25 years worth of evidence but I think it is where, frankly, anecdotes and early things can weigh more heavily. So as you've rightly pulled me up there, the temptation is to keep things grouped in with things that they may have been grouped in with before and saying, well, they, they, there's still this risk that they are linked in some way. And I yeah. think that's somewhere where um, 
as underwriters, people who understand risk, we need to be quicker to say, well, actually, this is this is different. Just because it's got the same overall heading, um, the prognosis can be very different. And I, I, I think that is a, a legacy thing and something to to push at. So, what often happens within insurers? So, let's do the um, let's do that. So, what happen, often happens within insurers is there will be chief medical officers who are specialists in certain conditions, and then others who are basically who are GPs um, who can advise. Within larger insurers, certainly, there'll often be individual underwriters who are tasked with specialist kind of knowledge. Um, and so I think with things like this, that actually, you know, there will be probably a handful of people, right, who really know about this in detail. And in case it's not already obvious, I am not one of them. I am one of them who has gone to talks on this stuff and and understands it well enough to make, uh, you know, to potentially decide whether to put a big amount of a company's savings at risk yeah. or not on an individual. So I, I understand it or I should understand it well enough to do that. But I think, again, it does just come back to this thing of going, you know, we need to listen, we need to understand, we need to challenge, right? So so if I was underwriting you this afternoon, then I would be going to my safe data sources and going and looking <laughs> those things up and da 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 da, da. But, You would not want to underwrite me, honestly. <laughs> my medical records, yeah. 500 pages. <laughs> I actually got a thank you from the insurer who underwrote me, just from the underwriter to say thanks. <laughs> thanks for sending that. I was like, well, I'm not taking risks, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but I think I think it is, it's back, you know, the, this this rare conditions as a whole piece is is absolutely this is this is what it's about and it is where where different specific where very specific diagnoses are being made then I think that is a key thing for advisors to hold to account and to to kind of emphasise that as you say you don't make that you don't end up with that diagnosis without someone knowing what they're doing yeah. and I think potentially a valid question for an underwriter to ask is who diagnosed you with that. Yes. Uh, because there are times where actually you suddenly see a spike in diagnosis and the main reason is because GPs are being incentivized to diagnose that condition yeah. in, you know, and, and those kind of things. If you're told a professor's diagnosed you with this as opposed to that, that or that, then frankly, then I, that, that, that needs to really drive a yes. very different decision. Oh, absolutely. I think if a consultant's been involved, then you're talking a completely different level of thing, you know, level of evidence and everything, which is brilliant, which is why I think sometimes with the rare conditions and we get, we can get sometimes a bit frustrated about is that, you know, sometimes it's the case of like, well, look, if they've been diagnosed with this rare condition, it's either that, yes, they've seen a consultant, there's going to be a lot of medical evidence, but if it's just the GP that said, and I'm not, I don't mean that to seem like just a GP, yeah. but it's just because if it is a rare condition and a GP has diagnosed it, then if it is if it is really that condition, the one there should have been more tests and the person needs to know in the sense that they need to have more tests. But it could well be that they've used the kind of terminology in a kind of sense, and it can sound bad, but a bit flippantly. Yeah. And, and, I, and I don't mean to say that, and I'm not criticizing GPs at all. You know, I know that may seem like I am doing, but I'm not doing it. It's just that it's what we're seeing quite a lot because we see a lot of errors in GP reports. And there are times where we're having to advise people to challenge not necessarily well sometimes a diagnosis from a gp but you know we're getting it where gp reports are incorrect and we're having to say to people look this you know basically what you're telling us is one thing which is absolutely fine we trust you but your gp report is absolutely something saying something different because they wouldn't the insurer wouldn't make this decision 
based upon what you've told us. And then we find out that the person, you know, and it's happening a lot where they're going back to the GP and they're coming back to them and saying, you will never believe what my GP's done. I'm having to go, I'm having to raise complaints. I'm having to get my medical records corrected. They've completely, you know, they've, sometimes it's the wrong people that are detailed in the report. Sometimes, for whatever reason, the GP's just completely misread the notes of whatever a previous consultant has said and has just kind of, kind of gone off on one <laughs> and I'm not saying that happens all the time and I'm not saying it's you know it's certainly something that I think that every GP I, I can't imagine there's any GP that's doing it deliberately um, or maliciously at all but it is something that we're seeing more and more of and I think I think that's quite from an advice point of view I find that quite scary because I think of all the people that are applying for insurances that don't have an advisor like ourselves um, behind them who can say to them, well, you need to write it like this, or you need to say it like this. And, and the thing is, is that some people could be going for insurance and not being able to get it because there's something in error on their report. And then there's other times that people are getting insurance willy-nilly without actually understanding what their medical report says. So when a, a report, you know, obviously if, if a claim happens, then they may actually be completely uninsured and not even realise it. And I don't know how to solve that because there's, there's no easy way to solve that. But I just think we're in a very confusing, potentially dangerous time. Um, and it's, it's just, it's worrying sometimes just to, to see that. And I, I honestly don't know what the answers are. If it's okay with you, I would like to um, go through just very quick case study. And then we've got our first listener's question which I'm yes, quite excited about. Um, so the first case here, I just want to give this out there to advisors. So I'm going to chat about um, uh, somebody that came to us who had sickle cell anemia. So it is a rare condition, um, but it is one that we see quite regularly. Um, so I just wanted to give an example for anybody out there who has come across something like this. So we had somebody who had sickle cell anemia, also had a silent heart murmur, but they, um, they weren't on any medication, but they had within the last five years or so had a couple of what's known as crises due to the sickle cell. Um, but bar that, they were very fit and healthy. And they had been previously declined by two insurers before they spoke to us. So I was um, did have someone mention to me, it's worthwhile we're doing this, um, explaining the rating, um, just in case I um, and anybody hasn't really come across that, because obviously people don't always have people that are rated. Um, so for this person, we got them a business life insurance, and the premium was um, rated um, 150%. Now, it really confused me when it came to premium ratings. It took ages for me to get the hang of this. And Alan always looks at me like I'm really, really silly for not really understanding it. But just for whatever reason, I'm good at maths, but for whatever reason, the ratings really, really get to me. So if you've got 150% rating, you take the base premium. And what you do is, so 150% would actually mean that you times that base premium by 2.5. So we have our first uh, listener's question and um, I'm going to name drop the insurer. It's only because of the fact that the person is from an insurer. So I do apologize. This isn't any kind of endorsement or anything like that. I know we're not name dropping, but it is. Um, the question is from Phil Hull, who works at Holloway Friendly. And what he's asked Andrew is, if you take two people with identical medical conditions, one has been diagnosed as being treated and doing what the doctors told them to do, and the other is blissfully unaware that he has anything going on, then in a sense, what happens and what is, how does that work insurance-wise? Because naturally, the person who doesn't know anything about what's going on in their health just gets standard rates, goes on, there's no issues. And even in the event of a claim, there's no issues um, because nobody's been aware that they've had this condition for all this time, in a sense. But then how is that then fair on the person who is, being aware of maybe some kinds of signs in their body, they're being actively involved with their health and they're doing everything 
that's the GP has told them to do. Yes, thank you. Well, now I get two people to um, have voodoo dolls off. Why, be harsh, you and Phil, Catherine. Um, so, so <laughs> Come on, Andrew, how's it fair? Come on, answer the entire industry. Come on. <laughs> um, so, so I think that, I mean, the bigger picture, right, is assuming that this is, I guess, real conditions, um, then in that first situation, that individual is getting the most appropriate care. They'll have an improved quality of life and or life expectancy in the long run. So I'd rather be the first person uh, who's been diagnosed early and has to, you know, has to pay a bit more for my insurance, but has all of those good things happening. Um, and ultimately, with any sort of insurance, there are winners and losers. Um, the, I guess the warning sign for me in, in these hypothetical questions that are sometimes asked is to emphasise that that the second person, if they've had symptoms of anything, so if they've had numbness or pins and needles or chest pain or anything that's been asked about, they do need to disclose that. Um, so it may be that those do, I guess, trip them up or potentially help them find the correct diagnosis for them by going through the application form. Um, I guess the overall moral is you shouldn't wait until you know something's wrong to buy insurance. So that so that second person who you know, hasn't been diagnosed yet, um, that's, that's the ideal time to buy insurance. So rather than to wait until you know that something's wrong or something's being diagnosed. I think we're probably coming towards the end of the um, episode. So thank you very much for listening, everybody. So we're going on to our next um, truth or lie feature. So we need to figure out, again, which one of us is telling a truth and which one of us is telling a lie. I have to say, I really can't wait until we start getting guests on the episodes. <laughs> Having a bit of a three-way going on there. Um, so, Andrew, do you want to go first this time? Yes, sure. Um, so having been true last time, I can do my true voice again. Mm. Um, I am a bit of a night owl and have not been to sleep before midnight for four years. I just think that's the same for any parent, to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> well, four, so, so it's worth it. So I have a seven-year-old and a five-year-old. So it's, it's that. <laughs> the impact of that has uh, oh, changed me forever. How about you? What, what's your... What's, your, um, what's my thing? Yeah, right, half, so... half my statement. Oh, so... Um... Okay, then, right. So I'll put on clearly my best lying voice, like you say, so everyone can know. Um, but my family say that I am a classic case of being quite smart, but little common sense. So I will embarrassingly admit that I cannot work push-pull doors. Yeah, leave that for everybody. So I just want to say thank you, um, everybody, for listening. We hope you found this all useful. If you have any questions or you want to discuss anything or if you want to disagree with Andrew, please do send us a message. Um, more than happy for you to do that. Yep. Yeah, uh, thank you for that. We'll be back in two weeks. So if you'd like a reminder of the next episode when we'll be chatting about smoking and e-cigarettes and vaping and all those kind of good things, then drop us a message on social media or visit our new website. Uh, so our website is or will be uh, www.practical-protection.co.uk thank you very much for listening um take care yeah take care everybody bye, bye.